the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. difference is that the conscience is what we're all born with. It is, it is a, a moral compass. It is an internal mechanism, a God awareness and a self-awareness. When you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit heightens your conscience so that now you have a more sensitive conscience than you ever did before because the Spirit of God within you bears witness to what is right and wrong. And so then you become even more aware of right and wrong, more sensitive to it instead of desensitized to it. When you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, your sense of what is right and wrong is heightened. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, explains to you that everyone is born with a conscience. Everyone is born with a moral compass of what's good and evil. However, over time, if not listened to, people can become desensitized to it. Pastor Gary encourages you that with the Holy Spirit, your sense of these things actually becomes stronger. The Holy Spirit is always pointing you to the way of Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts, chapter 23, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Chapter 22 tells us that Paul has finished his third missionary journey throughout uh, much of Europe, in those days called Asia Minor, and over even into Greece as well. And he's returned from his third missionary journey to Jerusalem. He isn't in Jerusalem very long when there is a riot uh, because some in Jerusalem falsely accused him uh, of a few things. Actually, it was uh, back in chapter 21 that they accused him. Uh, in verse uh, 20, 27 through 29, it talks about how they, they, uh, they stirred up the crowd and they made a riot over, the, over these false truths. Number one, they said, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. So they accused Paul of of being a turncoat, that he wasn't really uh, uh, in favor of the Jews, even though he himself was a Jew. Um, and so they accuse him of that. He's not faithful to our people, to our law, to this place. None of that was true. And then it also says uh, in uh, back in chapter 21, verse 28, that he brought Greeks, who were Gentiles, into the temple area and defiled this holy place. And Gentiles were not allowed to go into the holy, holy area. Uh, there was a place of the court of the Gentiles, and they could go no further even penalty of death. Well, he didn't do that either, so they they misunderstood what he was doing when he helped 
a few Jewish brothers and a vow that they had taken, some assumed that he was actually bringing Gentiles into the temple area. So uh, these things were outlandish, but nevertheless, it was enough to stir up the crowd. And, and so, you know, people were shouting and, and they were beating people up. And it, it was just kind of like a Donald Trump rally. And anyway, and so uh, here we go. And so at, he actually is going to get rescued by the Roman uh, centurion here who, who, um, who comes to his aid. Because these Jews, are, they've just pounced on Paul. They're beating him up. And so the Romans, uh, the Roman uh, detachment comes here and actually saves Paul's life. They rescue him from being beaten to death. And so they haul him into the barracks. They, they don't quite understand what is the ruckus about, in part because there's such chaos, number one. Number two, because these are uh, Roman soldiers, and so they're Gentiles. They don't understand the whole Jewish law and Jewish accusation and, and even the Jewish language at the time. Uh, so they take Paul to the barracks where they uh, proceed to beat him. And, uh, you know, I guess they figure they can get the truth out of him that way somehow. Uh, but Paul then asserts his Roman citizenship, which was completely legitimate. He was a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen. And he basically said to those who were beating him, is this how you treat a fellow Roman citizen? And so he plays the Roman citizen card. And the, the commander there said, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yeah, I am. He said, I was, uh, and, and the, the guard said, oh, I had to pay for my, the commander said, I had to pay for my Roman citizenship. So you could secure citizenship in the Roman Empire by paying a steep price for it. Or you could be born by birth into a Roman family, and therefore you were, you were a Roman citizen. And so the commander said, I had to pay a steep price for mine. Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. So that was even a more privileged position. Well, when that was exposed, the commander seriously recognized that they have just offended and broken their own law. He could get in deep trouble for it. So he doesn't beat Paul any further, but this is what he decides. I'm going to take you before your own Jewish ruling council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, the next day. And then we're going to all unpack all of this, whatever these accusations are against you. Why are, why are your fellow Jews trying to kill you? So we're, I'm going to take you, the commander says to him, in front of the Sanhedrin tomorrow. And we're going to let you defend yourself there. And we're going to figure out what's going on here. So that's what happens. And that's where we are now here at, at chapter 23. Uh, actually, uh, look back just a verse earlier, uh, the end of chapter 22. Look at verse 30. In my Bible, there's a subtitle there. It says, before the Sanhedrin. So look at verse 30. It says, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So this commander, who's unnamed here in this verse, verse 30, but we actually find out his name later in chapter 23 because he's going to send a letter to uh, the governor of Judea. So we find out, if you just glance ahead, chapter 23 here, verse 26, Claudius Lysias. So that's the name of this commander, Claudius Lysias, and he brings... Paul in front of the Sanhedrin. So he has the authority to ask the Sanhedrin to convene. So they come together for a special meeting here. And, and so now Paul is being put in front of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, 70 men in Israel, Jews, the high priest served as kind of the chairman of the board, if you will. 
And the high priest uh, was the one responsible, kind of as the chief justice, to, to make sure that the proceedings were carried out officially and properly and legally. The Sanhedrin was a mixture of two different sects of Judaism, Pharisees and the Sadducees. So uh, that's important in our story because Paul is going to play them off of each other like a child does against mom and dad. But it's brilliant the way Paul does it. It's not brilliant the way your kids do it. And my kids tried it. Fresh young one on the front row. But, um, but, but it's brilliant the way Paul does it because when you got a whole group of 70 people who are accusing you of something, it isn't even true, and you're trying to defend yourself, and the odds are stacked against you 70 to 1. What you what you want to do is you want to get the 70 to start fighting with each other so that you're you're not the guy they're upset with anymore. And that's what he does. And it is it is brilliant. So take a look here. So verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, "My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day." Now pause there. We're going to spend a little bit of time here at verse 1, but don't don't do the math and think, well, if he spends this much time on verse 1, we're only going to get through verse 4 today. No, actually, we're going to get a lot further, but verse 1, there's a lot in here. So first of all, circle the word brothers. He addresses the Sanhedrin as my brothers. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Paul at one time was a member of the Sanhedrin because historically speaking, if he were not, he would have addressed them respectfully as my father's. But because he addresses them as my brothers, and he makes himself equal with them. In fact, he's going to say my brothers further down also in verse 5. Paul replied, brothers. Okay, So he's putting himself on equal footing. It tells us it's insight. And there's not an explicit verse that tells us Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. But there are a few different places in the scriptures, and this is one of them, where it is implied, at least implicitly, that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, That matters because it tells us then by inference that Paul was officially a member of the Jewish ruling council at one time. Kind of think of it like a a very large, you know, 70 people, Supreme Court kind of a thing. And so the high priest is the chief justice. You got got all these other justices on, on the council here. And if that is the case, that Paul was in fact a member of the Sanhedrin, then it would have required him to be married because back in that day, you could not be a member of the Sanhedrin unless you were a man who was either part of the Sadducees or Pharisees, one of those two religious sects, and you must be married. It was a requirement. Well, we know in Scripture that Paul was not married. So then there's big speculation that his wife die. Was Paul divorced? And we don't know. But he speaks in First Corinthians particularly as a single man. And what some believe, we don't have... Scripture on this, what some believe, uh, and there might be truth to this, is that when Paul became a Christian, his wife left him. Because he speaks about, if you're married to a non-believer, and, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says and a non-believer decides to leave, you're free. And he may have been speaking from personal experience, but that's another whole other Bible study. We're not going to go down that road. But I wanted to point out to you how he addresses them as brothers instead of my fathers, because it likely means he was a member of the Jewish ruling council earlier in his life when he was a rising star uh, among Jews at that time, persecuting Christians, very zealous for Judaism, but killing Christians along the way in order to preserve Judaism until the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus, okay? 
Now, the other thing I want to point out here is the word conscience. Circle the word conscience in verse 1. He says, my brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. This is a very important word. The word conscience appears 29 times in the New Testament, and Paul writes about the word 21 out of those 29 times throughout his epistles in the New Testament. Conscience is an important word, so I don't want to skip over it. I want you to also, though, just for the moment, leap on over to chapter 24, where he uses it again in verse 16. A couple of weekends ago, I made mention of this verse. I said, this is a great life verse for you to underline it. This is what he said in verse 16 of chapter 24. He says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That's a great life verse. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So what does this word mean? Why is it important? The word conscience basically means the inner judge or witness that approves when we do right or disapproves when we do wrong. It is our moral faculty, conscience, that inner judge or witness. Now, in the English language, the word conscience comes from two Latin words, con and scientia. Scientia means knowledge. Con means with or together. And so the idea of what is with or together, knowledge that is with or together, it becomes a self-awareness with and together God. Now, the Greek breakdown of the word is this. In your New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, whenever you read the word conscience, it is the Greek word sunidesis. Sunidesis is from two Greek words, sun meaning with and oida meaning to know. Same kind of inference here. It is the idea of knowing with or conscience, conscientia, knowledge with. And it is the idea of Vine's dictionary. Vine says it is a co-knowledge of oneself and God. A co-knowledge of oneself, it is a, a self-awareness and an awareness of what God thinks all at the same time. That's conscience. It is an internal mechanism of God awareness. And in the Bible, uh, the word conscience is used in many different ways. For example, here in chapter 23, 1, we read about a good conscience. That's what he says here in his opening speech of the Sanhedrin. And then in 24.16, we just read it also, he talks about having a clear conscience. But you can also read in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8.10, it speaks about a weak conscience. In Hebrews 10.22, it speaks about having a guilty conscience. In Titus 1.15, it talks about a corrupted conscience. And then the worst kind is 1 Timothy 4.2, where Paul refers to a seared conscience. And this is when you repeatedly go against your conscience of what you know would be wrong, but you just deny it, I'm just going to do it anyway. And it is possible to get to the place where your conscience becomes seared and maybe seared entirely or sometimes just seared in a particular area because you've done it over and over again. The idea behind something that is seared, it becomes dead. When you uh, cauterize something, you know, you're searing it so that it'll become dead. I, I was one of these kids... I'm a lot healthier as an adult than I was as a kid. I mean, I was, I was just sick all the time. It was just allergies and sinuses and ear infections and adenoids and tonsils. I'm not making this up. I had my tonsils out twice as a kid, twice. I said, is that even possible? Yeah, your tonsils can grow back. I can testify to it. So I had my tonsils, I was like three, and then my tonsils grew back. I had them out again when I was like 10. 
and I had, I had uh, tubes put in my ears. I don't know how many times. Adenoids cut out. I mean, I was a, just a total mess. Allergy shots. I was just terrible. So thankfully, God's grace over the years, you know, you kind of outgrow some of that. But I was a mess growing up. So here's, here's what I had to have done because I kept getting these throat infections constantly. So I had this awesome ear, nose, and throat doctor, all right, from Germany, Dr. Hans Scheidemendel. Now, a few months ago, there, there's another ENT, another ear, nose, and throat the doctor who goes to our church, and uh, he retired now, and I was mentioning to him my ENT, and he goes, I'm best friends, he's Greek, and he says, I'm best friends with Hans Scheidemendel. So I'm like, he's still alive? I didn't even know he's still alive. Anyway, I digress, but here's what he had to do. I had to cauterize the back of my throat so it wouldn't keep getting infections. So, you know, he had to, you know, like, burn off all the tissue through the back of my throat. I, you can actually see through the back of my head right now, right? There's, there's a hole. There's a hole through the back here. Anyway, it was not a pleasant experience. I can't taste anything anymore. Now, that isn't true either, but it sounds worse than it really is. Like, I have a bunch of scar tissue now in the back of my throat. You would never know it when you saw the back of my throat. But, but it's, I, I will never forget it, though. It was, it was an experience I will never forget. You have, like, hot solution burning the back of your throat. You're not going to forget it. I'll be fine. I'm working through it. I did get him back, because now this is going to date me. How many of you remember glass thermometers? Let me see. Glass thermometers. Wow, we got an old group here. And, and I put that thing in, he put that thing in my mouth, and I'm just so tired of that thermometer in my mouth, I just chewed it, and I broke it. Anyway, I couldn't feel a thing. My throat was cauterized. But anyhow, um, that's the idea. When you have something that is seared or burned, or those of you who work construction, you're using your hands all the time, and you get calluses, you don't feel any more anything. You don't feel pain. You don't feel anything where the calluses or where it was seared because it's been, it's been deadened. And that is the worst place to be when it comes to your conscience, is to have a dead conscience. Don't, don't feel badly if sometimes you have a guilty conscience. That's a good thing, friends. That's the way that the Lord gets our attention about something that is wrong. It's a built-in mechanism. It's a God awareness. Now, understand, everybody's born with a conscience. You don't have to become a Christian in order to get a conscience. Everybody has a conscience when they're born. What happens is, and what's the difference then between a conscience and the Holy Spirit? The difference is that the conscience is what we're all born with. It is, it is a, a moral compass. It is an internal mechanism, a God awareness and a self-awareness. When you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit heightens your conscience so that now you have a more sensitive conscience than you ever did before because the Spirit of God within you bears witness to what is right and wrong. And so then you become even more aware of right and wrong, more sensitive to it instead of desensitized to it. But there is, of course, a small percentage of the world population that... um, over a variety of reasons and factors that can contribute to it, somebody actually has no conscience at all. They're, they're otherwise known as a psychopath or a sociopath by medical diagnosis. Someone who doesn't have a conscience. Someone who just does whatever they want, and they have no remorse, they have no guilt, they have no shame, they just do whatever they want. And some of the most horrible criminals in our culture are sociopaths and psychopaths. You know, in the 1900s, when um, conscience and the lack of conscience was being diagnosed, in the early 1900s, it used to be called psychopathetic personality. Uh, psychopathic, sorry, psychopathetic. It is not kind of pathetic, but it, psychopathic personality. But check this out. In the 1830s, when the problem was first diagnosed, 
of a person who was absent a conscience. In the 1830s, it was first called moral insanity. That's really what it is. It's moral insanity because the moral compass is broken. So God has given you a conscience. Don't violate it. And when you become a Christian, it becomes even more heightened. Don't violate it. Because if, if we repeatedly violate our conscience, that internal mechanism of this isn't right, and you, sh- you should feel uncomfortable when you're doing something that isn't right. Okay, don't violate it because if you continue over long periods of time to violate your conscience, you will eventually become so desensitized to it, you, you won't recognize it anymore as wrong. So be thankful that God has given you a conscience. It's God's way of helping you to know what is right and wrong instinctively and intuitively. So Paul gets up here, and he talks about his conscience. It's the first thing that he says here uh, to, to the Sanhedrin. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Verse 2, he says, At this the high priest Ananias, now this is not to be conf- confused with Annas, who was the high priest in Jesus' day. This is Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Go ahead and hit him. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you whitewashed wall, I mean, it's just, you know, basically calling him a tomb that, you know, you're, you're, you look nice on the outside, but you're corrupt on the inside, all right? He says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Here's a violation of the law. Deuteronomy 25.2. Deuteronomy 25.2 says that a man was not to be beaten until he was convicted. And here, Paul was being beaten and he was ordered by the high priest to be beaten in violation of Deuteronomy 25.2. Paul knew it because he knows the scriptures. He's like, you're a hypocrite. You, you just had me beaten against the law of God. And you're worrying about whether or not I've violated the law of God. Well, verse 4 says, those who were standing near Paul said, you dare, you dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now he's applying scripture to himself. He's quoting out of Exodus 22. Um, now, the question becomes, why did he say this? You know, why, if, if he was, in fact, a member of the Sanhedrin, and even if he wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin, which I believe that he was, but even if he wasn't, he was educated in, in, in the ways of Judaism under the tutelage of Gamaliel. Okay, he's very scholarly. Paul knows Jewish law, Jewish customs, Jewish everything. Why is it that he would not recognize the high priest? The guy with the big high ha- hat. That's the high priest, Paul. Why didn't he recognize him? There's actually some reasons why perhaps he, he did not. And I'm just going to give them to you. We don't know for sure, but here's number one. Could be from poor eyesight because of his injuries. That part is true. Paul said in Galatians 6, near the end of his letter to the Galatians, he said, I write to you with large letters with my own hand. And that's an indication of probably the eye injuries because he was beaten on many occasions, left for dead on a few occasions. And it is believed that Paul sustained some pretty significant eye injuries. That even it's possible when he even prayed in Corinthians to the Lord to take this thorn from his flesh, some believe he's referencing to his own, to his own physical impairment with his eyesight. But that's when the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness my power is made perfect. So 
whatever that thorn, we can debate all that, you know, a messenger from Satan, who knows exactly what that is. But there's enough, again, um, basis to believe that he had some pretty significant injuries. So maybe his eyesight was better. He didn't realize that this was the high priest. There's a second reason, perhaps, because the high priest was not acting like one. He had violated due process from Deuteronomy 25.2. And so basically, Paul was being sarcastic. That's possible. The book of Acts is awe-inspiring as you see the Christian church take off. You see these frightened disciples who had scattered, rallied together, and then spread out beyond their borders. It takes great faith to do what these believers did, just like it takes great faith to spread the word today. How are you engaging with this series so far? Do you have any questions or concerns? If so, feel free to email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd be happy to hear your prayer requests too. Are you living in or visiting the Leesburg, Virginia area? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find our service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and links to download our mobile app. Just look under the Teachings tab. Once again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of Acts that we hope inspire you. We look forward to you joining us again here on Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.